0: Open your Bibles this morning to the third chapter of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is about to give an answer for the knowledge he has been given of the Lord. This is kind of different than we would expect when we stand in awe of our God and when we stand in awe of His judgment and salvation. Habakkuk is an interesting character, as it were. Not just his name is hard to say and hard to spell, but he, in general, is a little bit different than we would expect as we see this conversation as a prophet between the God transpire before us. We're going to read the first couple of verses in Habakkuk chapter three. Just reading through verse three, so verse one through verse three of Habakkuk chapter three. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shigionoth, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath. Remember mercy. God came from men, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Here, Habakkuk, after hearing the knowledge that God would bring final judgment upon the Babylonians, is about to begin a prayer that equally works as a psalm or a hymn. Now, you'll remember from the first chapter until now, Habakkuk begins by asking, when, Lord, are you going to intervene? When he finds out, he's intervening and judging Israel, judging that southern kingdom, Judah, By sending the wicked Babylonians to destroy the nation, he then says, why, Lord, this? And he stands upon a watch and waits for God to answer him. And God begins by saying, the just shall live by faith. In other words, you have to direct your attention to me, Habakkuk, in this time of trial. So... He says, direct your attention to the object of faith, direct your attention to God himself, direct your attention to the truth that you already know and has been established before your eyes, and then he begins a long poetic kind of way, a parable, a taunting parable of condemning the Babylonians and saying they think they're strong, they think they can escape judgment, yet God is the ultimate judge, and though he tarries in the mind of man, God does not tarry and his final judgment will come. This would be a strange occurrence to us as we see Habakkuk begins to turn, and instead of complaining, as it were, instead of standing up in frustration and almost being defeated, you mean you're not going to fix it now? He begins to sing. This should teach us something, because when it says a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon Shiganoth, that word Shiganoth is signifying a kind of tune, a wandering tune or lyric. And it's almost poetic that this wandering up and down tune would be sung by a wandering prophet. So a prophet who is wandering with the knowledge that God has given him, wandering in a wilderness around a group of individuals who are wicked, wandering in... Seeing God's judgment would write a hymn that has wandering lyrics in tune. Well, he gives a prayer. He begins to give an intercession to God, but not just one that is praying to him, but one that is praying to him in song. This should tell us that when we see the awesome mightiness of God, what it should do to us is solicit our praise through song. We should begin to sing. It should instantly kind of make us want to cry out to God in hymns. It's sad that in today's times that hymn singing has lost its prevalence among churches, and it's began to be more of a production than it is an actual worship service, and we've turned the congregation into the audience instead of God as the audience, right? Right? Now, who is the audience in worship? It's not us. Now, don't get me wrong. I want to feel. I believe in an experiential religion, as it were, as the Puritans did, and religion you can feel. But at the same time, that's a latent effect. Edification for us is a latent effect that we get when we glorify and worship God as Him, as our audience. We are singing praises to God. And when we stand before God in all of His might... When we see the fact that God does bring judgment, that nothing escapes his view, that the God of justice will correct every injustice in this world, though we have doubts, though we have fears, though we still don't quite understand, because... In all honesty, God doesn't answer Habakkuk and say why he's doing the things that that he is, the way in which that he's doing it. Have you noticed that? In this book, he doesn't say, this is why I'm doing it this way. He just says, trust me, I am doing it this way and I know best. Notice that. He never says, okay, Habakkuk, here is a 1,200-page thesis explaining to you why I'm doing it this way. God doesn't have to do that. If you study the book of Job, God never actually answers the questions Job has. What he does is direct Job's attention to an object, which is himself. Here, Habakkuk isn't given an exact answer of why something happened. He just is told, listen, what I do is right. What I do is good. Nothing escapes my judgment. Yes, Israel will be punished by a nation more wicked than they. But know this, that nation is equally accountable to me and will answer for their crimes. And Habakkuk stands back and kind of looks and sees how God, in the final analysis, will clip every branch as it were. And instead of complaining, instead of getting frustrated, instead of getting mad that he doesn't instantly answer to him and say, You know, God, I I want answers now. What he does, he stands up and he says, In view of your goodness, your holiness, your justice, and how nothing will ever escape your view, and how you will ultimately right every wrong, he looks and says, I sing praises to you, Lord. I begin to sing to you. There's a hymn that we sing called Marching to Zion, and it says, Let those refuse to sing who never knew our Lord, but children of the heavenly King. He then says, sing to him. If you know the Lord this morning, the automatic response that knowing the Lord should solicit from our hearts and our souls is to sing praises to him. You can say, brother, my voice ain't the greatest. Well, God does not judge our singing to him by the... Preciseness of the note, but of the position of the heart. And if you stand before God with a heart full of joy and happiness, knowing that He is mighty, He is holy, He is just, and you are thankful to know that He will right every wrong, what you should do is begin to sing praises to His name. But you know, not only is it that He is given an automatic response to seeing the majesty of God and the beauty of God. But I would add that singing is equally, as it were, in this chapter for Habakkuk, therapeutic in a sense. You'll see at the very end of it, he begins to turn the table back to himself after he talks about some attributes of God. He turns the table back to himself and kind of acknowledges that he's going to continue to serve the Lord in spite of everything. Singing really is therapeutic. Now, we all know that we can hear a song on the radio And I won't tell you which stations I listen to sometimes. (laughs) Uh, We won't acknowledge that. You know, we all got little things that we like to hear and like to listen to and kind of take us back. And, you know, I can hear a song and I can literally close my eyes. Not while I'm driving do I close my eyes. When Rebecca's driving, you know, I don't do that. I don't like, oh, that's such a good song. Close my eyes while I'm driving. But if, if I hear a song, you can literally be taken back to a place, right? Let's say you're depressed, you're discouraged. You may put on your favorite music. They've even shown a correlation with children that listen to classical music have a higher chance of uh, kind of growth in educational uh, areas. And a child that learns to read music and play music actually does better in other areas of education, such as mathematics. And so music is it, it's interesting. I think God has programmed us to respond to music in a certain way. And music itself is therapeutic. As we sung, there is coming a day that we're looking forward to in which every heartache shall be taken away it's hard not to have your mind and heart pulled into a feeling that transcends the trials of this life and you see here Habakkuk in a prayer a hymn not only is giving an automatic response to God in seeing his might but he equally is showing an open eye to his soul as he is finding therapy in singing to his God. It really is therapeutic. Well, let's look at this, this wandering hymn that he begins to sing. He starts out by saying, O oh Lord, I have heard thy speech and, I was, af- and was afraid. O oh Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. He begins by saying, remember mercy in the midst of the years. An interesting construct to the beginning of this prayer. What God says will happen, will happen, right? If God says, okay, I'm coming again, I don't have to wonder if he's going to. If God says, I will do this, I don't have to wonder if He is. If God promises to His church that He will be with us world without end, amen, I don't have to wonder if He is, right? He promised it. He's going to do it. Yet Habakkuk still, in knowing that God would fulfill this, he prays that it will happen in the midst of the years. You know, I know God will add to the church daily such as should be saved. I know that God is with us World without end, amen. I know in Hebrews chapter 13, quoting the book of Joshua, he says, I will never leave thee thee nor forsake thee, but my heart still sometimes bows my head and begs, Lord, do not leave me, do not forsake me. You see, sometimes our heart cries out to God that we may experience the fullness of the truth and surety of his promise. And this should give us encouragement to pray for such things, such as the church, that God would be with us, that God would deliver us, that God would save such as should be saved. We shouldn't take a fatalistic attitude and say, well, God, you know, what will be, will be. No, even when we know God will be with us, we should beg God be with us. Even though we know you are with us, make your presence so vivid among us that we know you are here. During the week, I come multiple times during the week and sit down and pray for everyone here. But the ultimate final prayer that I give before I finally get up and have to go about to all those daily tasks that build up every time I take a break, right? (laughs) Every time I take a break, they begin to build up. And so I, I get here and I pray and I pray for everybody by name. And then in the final moments before I step out, I say, God, make yourself known here that even unbelievers would say something is different about that place. Make it so known that even the mouths of unbelievers would be stopped. And he looks and says, O Lord, calling out to the covenant name of God, which is the background Hebrew word here, O Lord, in all caps, he says, revive thy work in the midst of the years, in the appointed time, revive your work. And then he begs God in the very last part of that verse, in wrath, in your wrath and judgment, remember mercy. He then begins to remind himself as he sings of past deliverances God had given Israel. Now, when we are trying to reestablish our own mind, kind of refocus, you know, sometimes we have to reframe our perspective. That's a counseling term people use when they're trying to help people out and they're trying to make them see the bright side of things. It's called reframing, you know. It's not that bad. Count your blessings, name them one by one. That would be considered reframing. You're reframing your view around other truth. Well, as he transitions from verses one and two that begin this prayer and this hymn to verse three, he is going to begin reminding himself and all those that would sing of prior blessings and deliverances that God has worked among Israel. Notice he says, God came from men and the Holy One from Mount Paran, and he uses this word selah. Probably that word means, that's a transliteration. That's an actual Hebrew word. We don't know exactly what it means. It may be a pause break in a hymn. It's used 71 times in the Psalms, and the only other place it's ever used in the Old Testament is three times in the book of Habakkuk. (laughs) It probably means pause break, may mean pause break with attached to amen, in other words, let it be. Not only Paul's in the song, but say, let it be. But he says, God came to men and the Holy One from Mount Paran. This is supposed to remind the Israelites here how God had delivered them in the past. You see, both of these places are south of Jerusalem, close to Mount Sinai. And so when he says, God came from, the Holy One from, he's reminding them that God had been with them from the delivering of the law, from the very very moment that God gave them the Old Testament covenant. There, as we read in the Old Testament, how he gave them the Ten Commandments and gave them all the various ordinances as they wandered around in the wilderness. He says, was not God with us then? And that's a good way to approach trials. Has God ever not been with you? Can we look at a single time in life where God has not delivered us. And I would say this, there has not been a single trial in my life that I cannot look back and say, the only thing that brought me through that was the Lord. And even if it had been through the means of my wife or family, the only people that are in my life have been placed there by my God. So every blessing that I have is still a deliverance from him. And so he's reminding them, remember where you came from. Remember that everything in life that has led up to this point has been under the providential blessing of God, and the only security that you've had from then till now has been by God. In times of trial, that's something to remember, not only as we're trying to wrestle with these ideas of why do bad things happen, why does God allow this, why has God not intervened, we have to remember that throughout our entire life, He has been intervening. Throughout all of the trials, God has intervened. The very fact that God lets me, a sinner whose very existence apart from Christ, is offensive to Him, exist from day to day, and God does not take me in my sleep for the sins of the day before is a testimony that He has delivered me. Amen? The very fact that I'm here, the very fact that in my youth that... He didn't take me then or He didn't give me the end of my own actions. You know, I can look at some of the things just in my youth and think, what was I thinking? There's a song, a country song from the early 2000s that goes, what was I thinking? And I sometimes think that's the best question. I look back and half embarrassed of everything that I've done in my past. What was I thinking? And now, I, now that I have two boys that are close in age that me and Ben, They act a lot like me and Ben. They get into the same troubles of me and Ben. I find that question is turning to not what was I thinking, to what are you thinking? (laughs) What are you doing? But you know what? That's youth. And the fact that God providentially cares for us through it all should remind us that though at the present moment it looks dark, if we can look back, we can see the light throughout all of it. The good old times are the good old times because we can look back and see that God was there. And he says, his glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. He says, the heavens themselves testify of the glory of God. We cannot see anywhere around us where God's glory is not shining forth. And because of that, the earth is praising him. The earth praises God in response to his glory feeling all of it. This is one reason why it's such an offense to God when the one sentient being he has made. I want you to think about this. The trees naturally glorify God with their very existence. The animals naturally glorify God by their very existence. The earth spinning on an axis as the moon spins around it, as they both spin around the sun, as all of the planets are sitting there spinning and the entire universe made up of this wondrous, almost mathematical clockwork, all glorifying God and praising his name, yet the one sentient being. And what I mean by that is the one being that can actually understand his beauty the, the animals, they may be able to run on instinct, but have you ever thought about the fact that humans are the one thing that can actually understand appreciation and art? Yeah. Think about this. You are made different than everything else. And think about how offensive it is, it is to God when the one thing that is sentient does not sing forth praise. The one thing that can really see and understand is beauty. Beauty. His brightness was the light, and I'm not gonna be able to go through every single verse because it would be long, but I want us to get the content as he builds this past salvation that he has given. His brightness was his light, meaning in salvation. His brightness was as it were a sunrise as the light begins to crest over the horizon in both beauty of color and overwhelming brightness. I remember at a young age, children specifically us as ignorant boys would try to look at the sun and or there'd be a sunset and you would try to look up and see it and it didn't matter if the sun was covered by the shadow of the moon or the, the image of the moon. You'd still look up and get blinded, right? Even, even as it is being hidden in just a small way, it was blinding. And here the reference is that the glory of God is as a blinding a bright light not only is his glory blinding but yet horns coming out of his hand his hand is full of strength you can look throughout the old testament specifically in the book of daniel and see how beasts would arise out of a sea with multiple horns and that was supposed to show strength it was imagery to show strength you can see a ram uh, going through mountains that men try to hunt. Uh, you can see antlers on a deer and the strength of the animal is typically in how many antlers it has, right? <laughs> I don't really trophy hunt. Uh, I have shot one You know that was both for meat and horns and I admit that it may be hanging in the garage because somebody won't let it in the house, but <laughs> I, may have, I may have shot one that was somewhat for horns. I think it's beautiful, but it's kind of tucked away in the garage, but, you know, that's okay. But when I saw the animal, I saw its horns, its antlers, and it was meant to be an emblem of its power. And he says, God's horn, his power is in his hand. Just his hand alone is powerful. And he says, look at what God has done through the brightness of his glory and the power of his hand. And he says, and there was a hiding of his power. This is a double-edged sword here. One, there's a hiding of his power in the sense that sometimes God waits in his power to deliver his people. Sometimes God waits. Sometimes, as it were, in Israel, they were in bondage for some amount of time. They were in bondage in Babylon and Persia for some amount of time, and God's power was hidden, as it were. But equally, God's power is often hidden in the sense that if his power fully overtook the earth, judge. I, it, I'll put it this way, his judgment will overtake the earth fully one day, and when that day happens, every molecule of this place will be burnt up. So knowing that his power is hidden is a frightful thought because we see how powerful he is just in keeping all of it together to think that his power is in some way hidden. That's why God told Moses, no man can see my face and live. I am so bright. I am so powerful to see me in my fullest. You would just simply cease to exist. In verse 6, he says, he stood and measured the earth. And the idea is measuring in judgment. He's seeing if it measures up, as it were. Uh, you can think, does this measure up? Are you measuring up? He stood God stands. It's showing that he is standing up. His power was hidden, but now he stands. He is now being active. He stood, and this word is showing the idea of continually standing and measuring. Measure the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting Notice how he not only says he drives asunder the nations. In other words, every nation is answerable to him. Every nation is judged by him. Every single man, woman, and child, the inhabitants thereof, is answerable to God, and he drives them asunder. But equally, the mountains themselves are scattered before him. The perpetual hills did bow. I've seen some mighty things in my life. I've seen some pretty mighty sights. I, I showed you all a picture that we drove, uh, that not drove, that we flew over while we were going through Russia. I thought it was the strangest thing that we were flying uh, from Shanghai through Russia, through Alaska, to Atlanta. Well, I kept the window open the whole time. I'm a child. I'm telling you, I'm a child. And I had to take my glasses off in the plane and I had my head like plastered against the, uh, the glass because I'm like, look, you know, I'm like a baby. <laughs> it really is like a child looking out the window. And I'm sitting there looking out the window and then all of a sudden I see snow-capped mountains rolling, gigantic, and I look like I can touch them because they're so tall and they're beautiful. And, you know, we stand in awe of the simple creation of God, yet the creation of God that takes our breath away when we see it whatever mountain it may be, it may be Double Oak Mountain just over the hill, it may be Mount Everest across the world, whatever mountain or sight that takes our breath away, that bows in submission to God, both because of his glory, his beauty, but equally because of his power and his might. So he says, look at what God's done. Look at how God has worked. Look at how God has not left us absent. Look at how God has worked in your life. Look at how God has worked in times past. When you feel as though you are being overwhelmed with darkness and beginning to drown in the water of despair, look back. Remember. Sometimes we can look back and feel discouragement and think of how times used to be. My friend, I I, I look back at at least late childhood, late adolescence, late teenage years, and um, I see a lot of my friends coming to the Knowledge Truth, coming to church, uh, being more dedicated to Christ, and I sometimes get discouraged that I'm not seeing some of the same impact as I did then. Instead of looking at those things as discouraging, it's discouraging that the pews are not full as they once were, right? It's discouraging when we don't see the days of years gone by. Instead of being discouraged of what was, look back and remember who God still is. The God that blessed then is the God that still blesses now. Therefore we can say as Habakkuk, revive thy work in the midst of the years. You see, he looks and doesn't say, Lord, look at what you've done and now we're just having this horrible occasions and trials, but he says, look at what God has done and that same God that did it then is the same God that has told me what he is doing now. The same God that blessed then is the God that still blesses today. The God that blessed you in your childhood is the God that is going to be with you in your early adulthood. The God that blesses you in early adulthood is the God that will bless you in what we call the Middle Ages. The God that blesses you in Middle Ages is the God that will bless you and continue to be with you in older age. And that God who blesses you in older age is the same God who blesses you with dying grace to pass on into the very presence of your Lord. The God who is with you in the beginning is the God who will see you to the end. And that's the point that Habakkuk makes here. As he looks back at what has happened, he's saying, remember how God has delivered. And if it wasn't for God's continual providential delivering, we would have been consumed long ago. Well, he then turns... Um, moving fast through this, he then turns and begins to talk about his power in verses 8 and 9 as he goes all the way through verse 12. Notice how he says in verse 9, thy bow was made quite naked, meaning your bow was pulled out. When it says thy bow was made quite naked, he's saying your bow that was in the sheaf is now being pulled out and seen. Your power which was hidden is now being made manifest according to the oaths of the tribe as you have promised your people, the oaths, the covenant, even thy word, "Law, let it be, Paul's break. He says, Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. Notice in verse 10 how he says, The mountains saw thee and they trembled. Look at your power. Look at how everything around you stands in awe. The mountains themselves, one of the most glorious images that it may take us days, years to climb over, yet they stand and tremble before you. The overflowing of the waters passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. He says, everything around you, the most glorious images we can see, stands in awe and is not even to be compared to your power. Not only is God faithful in delivering, and see, this is the point. Not only God is faithful in delivering, but he's powerful to do it. You know, there are some people that I trust are very faithful to me. There are some people that I trust are very, that will always be there. There are some people that I know that won't. I mean, we all, we all know it's one of those things, that everybody, you know, it, it's just one of those things. We know there's some people that will be there in our corner, there's some people that will not, and we kind of have to adjust for that, but there's some people that I know that will always be there to help when they can. You know, some people, even though they're as faithful as they can be, they may not have the power to fix it, right? You see, this is the image that we're getting. God is faithful, but not only he's faithful, but he's equally powerful to do it. My wife is faithful. She has shown herself year after year after year to be faithful. Not just to our marriage, but in life and everything that we do. She is there in my corner. Yes, there may be some rain, but there's never been a storm that has sunk the ship, right? (laughs) She's faithful. You know, there may be rain, but she's always there. But sometimes there are things and recesses of my heart that she can't really reach. There are pains she can't soothe. There are issues that she can't fix. She's faithful, but she's not all-powerful. There are people in your life that may not be able to help, though they want to. My dad one time told a minister, I shouldn't have said my dad said it, <laughs> but still a good quote. He told another minister, and I have found this to be true to some regard. He said, you can always count on God but you can't always count on the church. That's sad. Now, sometimes you can't count on the church for the wrong reasons. Sometimes you can't count on the people of God because of their own limitations. You know, there's only so much we all can do. However, there is one who is both faithful and powerful one who not only has delivered in the past and continued to deliver you throughout all your life, but he is still one who has the ability and power to always do it. Does God have the ability today to use each one of us to his service, to bless this community, to have the knowledge of the truth in Christ, of his free and sovereign grace? Amen. Does God have the ability to have the blessings of yesteryear be the, yes, the, the blessings of tomorrow. Yes, he does. Whether or not he does or does not, I do not know. But I am going to pray like Habakkuk and say, Revise thy work, revive it, Lord, in the midst of the years. You've been with me thus far, and you have the power to do it again. The sun and moon in verse 11 stood still in their habitation. They stood still. He's now also probably giving poetic imagery, discussing the fact that in the time of Gideon that everything kind of stood still. Also in the book of Joshua, they stood still. You remember those moments in the Old Testament how God even stopped the rotations? Think about that. God just says, all right, I want you to stop. (laughs) Stop moving. The earth stood still. The moon, the sun... Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. He says, look at your power. Look at what you've done. He then transitions to verse 13, which is a little bit different. He's moved from the beginning of the prayer, the automatic response to seeing the mightiness of God, to moving to his past deliverances, to then moving towards the power of God. And then he says something that's interesting. One that Old Testament saints may not notice as much as we do in hindsight. Now he says thou winnest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for thy, with even for salvation with thine anointed. Now the word anointed can have specific reference to the nation of Israel itself. They were anointed of God in the sense that He separated them as a chosen people. Now that's true. But the word anointed comes from the same word which we get Messiah. You know what the New Testament equivalent to Messiah and anointed is? Christ. Christ. Now let's read that again. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, you went forth saving, you went forth delivering. Now, notice this. None of that we've read so far has said, Lord, look at how good we did. <laughs> it's, Lord, you delivered. You are powerful. The most mighty men in history are the ones that recognize that the power of God does not exist in their own strength, but in their weakness, because God is powerful and he is faithful. But thou wenteth forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. You see this ultimately, though this speaks... In an immediate prophetic sense of the salvation of the anointed nation of Israel, in the ultimate or final sense, this speaks to us as New Testament believers as the salvation that we have in none other than Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, who took on human flesh, who died on a cross and was raised again on the third day. Lord, you went forth with Christ. And saved us. Thou wouldest the head out of the house of the wicked. In other words, you have destroyed what is against us by discovering the fountain of the neck. You've, in other words, cut it off at the neck. Lord, you sent your Christ and you destroyed the problem that was against us. Selah. Let it be. Amen. Well, here he is transitioning to the point to reminding not only that God has delivered in the past, God is powerful to deliver, but as a prophecy of Jesus Christ here in verse 13, he looks forward to saying God will yet deliver. And now we look back and say, look at how God has delivered. Now, I want to ask you, if God has forsaken his only begotten son, his anointed, the chosen, the Messiah, For you, will he ever leave you? Listen, I love every single one of you in here. You're a blessing to my life. I love children of God, even those that are not uh, of our fellowship and denomination. I just love people, right? I love people. But as much as I love you, I would not give my child for you. Not them. You can ask anything from me. You can ask me of anything that I prize in this life. But if you ask me for my child, I couldn't do it. If God gave his only begotten son, the second person of the Trinity, who existed from all eternity as the eternal son of God, if he sent him to take on human flesh to be spit at, forsaken, hated, hung on a cross, mocked, and to have the imputation of our sins upon Him as the wrath of God poured out upon Him, if the Son of God, the Anointed One, was forsaken for you, will God ever forsake you? Absolutely not. Selah. He continues by saying, thou dost strike through with the staves. He looks at the judgment of God. He says in verse 15, "...thou didst walk the sea with thine horses. Your judgment has went forth mightily through the heap of the great waters." Now he's transitioning to his response to this in verses 16 through 19. "...when I heard, when I heard what God had said, when I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice of rottenness entered into my bones and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble when he cometh up unto the people he will invade with his troops (laughs) what is his um, physical response to what happens we see the emotional or mental response with singing of the hymns this is his physical response what he's doing as he is singing what does he do when I heard my belly trembled in other words my heart sank inside of myself, I began to quake. He didn't stand up and clap and try to be some type of pep band for God, some cheerleader. No, he stood there and quaked. In the presence of God, there was sober fear. And he says he did this, trembled in himself that I might rest in the day of trouble. That word rest does not necessarily hold the connotation of resting and uh, of sitting back and just letting things happen. It's meaning I will wait I will rest or wait in the day of trouble. While everything's happening, while everything around me is falling down, while the house of cards begins to crumble for Israel, I will wait on God. I'm going to wait. He says, I'm trembling, but I'm waiting. And then he, in verse 17, begins to say what he will do. And notice the way he prefaces this. Although the fig tree shall not blossom. "'Neither shall fruit be in the vines. "'The labor of the olive shall fail, "'and the fields shall yield no meat. "'The flock shall be cut from the fold, "'and there shall be no herd in the stalls.'" He looks at every single type of economic uh, connection of Israel, everything that their economic system was made up of, and says this, everything goes under. "'If the fig tree shall not blossom, "'if the farms are destroyed.'" if economically we cannot make a living, if the fruits shall not be in the vines, if the labor of the olives shall fail, if farmers, if the economy is turned upside down and I have nothing to eat, nothing to sell. He says, and the fields shall not yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold and there shall be no herd in the stalls. He says, economically, if I'm destroyed, if I have nothing in my life to show as a blessing of God, if the food that I had before me is taken, if my health is stripped from me, if my clothes are destroyed, if my house falls in, if everything I have that I've worked for, that I've planned for is stripped from me, if all of it's gone, yet. He says yet. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. He says regardless of what I have, If I have Christ, I have joy. If I have nothing else, yet Christ, I am rich. And if I have all the riches this world has to show and have not Christ, I have nothing. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Verse 19, the Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like hinds. He says, the Babylonians, their strength was their God. But my God is my strength, and he will place my feet like hinds. In other words, he's going to make me sure-footed. Let this put a different way, in a counter-parallel. If your strength is your God, you are not on sure footing, but you're standing on sand. Yet, in spite of everything, if God is your strength, regardless of what happens around you, Regardless of anything that happens, you are attached to something that transcends the storm. Regardless of what happens around you, if your eyes, if your faith is directed towards Jesus Christ, as the anointed one who has saved you, remembering what he has done in the past, remembering of his current omnipotent, omniscient power— Remembering him, knowing that ultimately he will do all things right, regardless of what is happening around you. You can say, I can be stripped of everything in this life, yet I will serve God because he is my strength. What do we do when bad things happen? As we wrestle with the knowledge around us, without answers of knowing why exactly it happens, without being given a laundry list of all the various Uh, intricate details of why God did something or didn't do something, why God waited or why God acted, instead of standing up and looking for that list, directing our attention to the God, the Holy One, who has done all things correct, all things justly, all things holy. And even though at the moment, in the moment, it may not seem as though we are prospering, praise be to God that in the final analysis, everything's going to work out because our God is good and our God is just. And even if I don't have anything now, I will serve him because he is my strength. He is my God. He is my power. He is yet to fail me. And if he forsook his son for you, then he will never forsake you. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your love and your kindness that you have shown to us through sending your Son to die for our sins. Let us remember, Lord, that from our infancy that you have been with us. And Lord, in our weakest moments, that you have upheld us. Lord, that in spite of everything around us, that destroys our hope. Lord, we can look with surety to know that you have been with us You are powerful to save. And Lord, because your son has died for us, nothing can separate us from your love. Gracious God, I beg now at this moment that you would help us not to obsess of the blessings of yesteryear, but Lord, know that you can bless us now because you are still just as powerful. Lord, I pray now that we would be able to pray the prayer with Habakkuk, that you would revive your work in the midst of the years. Lord, individually, as every person that is here, I pray that you would revive your work in their heart. Let them find hope and peace to be able to say that you are their strength. Gracious God, I pray that you would revive their minds, that they would know that your power still resides with them because your anointed one has brought salvation. Gracious God, let us have the mentality of Habakkuk. That If we do not have anything and have you, we are blessed but, Lord, collectively as a church. I pray, Lord, that you would revive your work here. Lord, use us as instruments to your glory. Call sinners to repentance. Lord, let us be disciples, ready to disciple and preach to others. Lord, let us be your servants, ready to go forth teaching and preaching. Lord, though you call certain men to preach your gospel, I pray, Lord, that all in the assembly would be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within them to your honor and glory. Lord, deliver your children in this community from everything that takes away from your glory, from false doctrines, from cults. Lord, from sorrow and death. Lord, let us be a shining light of your power and your strength. Not that we are powerful, Lord, but that we are weak and that you are strong. Gracious God, let us collectively Remember what you have done here in this assembly and kept it these many years, and let us know that your power still resides on us, because if your son died for us, Lord, let us remember that he will never forsake us. Gracious God, whatever happens, and if you make us not to grow, individually, collectively, let us praise your name in all things, gracious God, because you are our strength In Christ's name, we pray for your glory, your presence, and amen.